0: Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How To Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
2: You need Indeed. When we get into a discussion about whether we want to save the economy or save lives, you get the response that you can't place a price on human life. So of course, we have to choose lives. The problem with that claim is that we place a price on life all the time.
3: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You are probably hearing a debate right now about whether the cure is worse than the disease. The cure here, of course, being social distancing and the extreme amounts of economic suffering it will force, and the disease, of course, being COVID-19 and the potentially millions of deaths it could cause. This is a debate that was coming into my inbox from some of you when I asked last week, what would you like to hear us cover here? Some of you said, is this worth it? Is the amount of economic pain we're going to cause worth what we are going to get? But then I began seeing this debate on Twitter, on op-ed pages, and then, of course, going all the way up to President Trump himself, who has staked out, I would say, a scarily extreme position.
0: Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. (laughs) I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter.
3: I obviously have views about this. But I think this is a debate we need to take seriously. At the very least, we need to take it seriously because if we can't buy people in to social distancing, if we don't have a real answer when people say, is it worth it, then they're not going to do it. And as you'll hear in here, I think we have screwed up the messaging on this quite profoundly. But I wanted to take this on from two different angles uh, and try to understand the underpinnings of the question being asked here and whether or not the choice we are being presented with is actually the real choice. So I have two different guests on today in an unusual structure for the show. The first is Jason Furman. He is a professor of the practice of economics and economic policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He was also the deputy director of the National Economics Council under Obama during the financial crisis and then the chief economist on the Council of Economic Advisors. And then after him, Ruth Faden, who is the founder of the Berman Institute for Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. Jason is here, of course, to talk about the economy. Is it true that if we backed off on social distancing, we would have a better economy? Is that tension being set up a real tension, or are we missing something there? But then economics aren't everything. So how do we think about the ethical questions? What is a reasonable moral framework to have? But let's begin here with Jason Furman. Jason Furman, welcome back to the podcast. It's uh, great to be back, I guess. Let me start with a simple question here. Given the economic costs of social distancing, is the cure, as the president has been saying, worse than the disease? I think
4: it is very unlikely that the cure is worse than the disease. Measuring the value of lives, even if you ignore the value of lives and are just looking at maximizing gdp a year from now we need to beat the virus to have an economy that's functioning a year from now
3: walk me through that a bit let's imagine we go to the extreme version that's being proposed here that we decide to say as i've heard people say we should that to the extent possible the elderly should quarantine but really everybody else should go about their lives if people die from this that's a shame but it has happened in human history before Do you think that it is possible to have a normally running economy as a pandemic is ripping through the population?
4: No. If, first of all, I don't think it's sustainable to just say we're going to allow the pandemic to rip through a population and not lurch back into um, the type of shutdown that so many places are in now. Even if people were willing to do that, You would be seeing every night overwhelmed hospitals. You'd have people at your own workplaces getting sick and going out. You'd have all the people around them, at a bare minimum, having to um, self-isolate. You'd have workplaces being closed down. It would be just a, a massive amount of economic uncertainty in the interim, followed potentially by an even longer lockdown.
3: One of the things that has been striking to me about the conversation is it seems to me to rely on a very thin idea of both independence and interdependence one of the lessons of the coronavirus as far as i can tell is to remind us of how unbelievably interdependent we are right a a lesson of contagion modeling is that you may not know how many people you influence in a day you may not know how many people will catch your germs two days later even if you never came into contact with them And so this idea that we could just segregate off the vulnerable as if they don't have families, as if they don't need to get food from groceries, as if you could somehow create that kind of quarantine inside the economy... It seems to me to harken back to theories of economics that maybe we had a long time ago or just humanity that we've had at other times, but not really make sense given a globalized, deeply service-oriented economic structure where people rely on others to get almost all goods either delivered or produced.
4: Yeah, the economy is one of the best ways to organize interdependence. It organizes interdependence on the scale of billions of people who are engaged in economic interactions. A lot of those interactions aren't face-to-face, but there are global supply chains and the like with ramifications. Um, But many of those interactions are face-to-face. And so there is just this incredible tension between what we want to be as a species, which is social, what we need to be as an economy, which is interacting in person and in a variety of other ways, And what we need to stay alive, which is to not do nearly, nearly as much of all of that right now.
3: One of the striking things to me is how much we have been thinking about the economy in national terms as opposed to global terms. I was talking to the economic historian Adam Tews today, and he made this good point to me that if you imagine a scenario like the one being contemplated, where unlike every other country, America more or less backs off the idea of trying to control the virus and instead somehow comes to peace with an equilibrium of overwhelming infection, high death rates, but more economic activity, that every other country in the world that is trying to slow the virus would almost by necessity have to shut their borders to us and economically isolate us as a danger to them.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why you you saw the UK pursue this strategy for a few days, and then very wisely backed off of this strategy. There would be a process of global ostracism of any country trying this. Now, let me be clear. We shouldn't stay in lockdown until the vaccine comes. We can't do this for a year and a half, but there's a lot more that we need to do to prepare ourselves for slowly and gradually coming out of the extreme social distancing we're doing now. And I don't think we're two weeks away from having the large infrastructure we
3: need to do that. Let me look at this from the the other side, because emotionally, intellectually, I'm obviously on the pro-social distancing side of this argument. But I I do take some of the points people are making. So I'll I'll give an example. Um, I think people see a very inconsistent definition of risk and an inconsistent valuation of human life. Uh, Political consultant Matthew Dow tweeted, there are 40,000 road deaths a year. We could eliminate that completely if we said people could only drive 20 miles per hour and only five miles a day. But doing that would wreck huge parts of our country economically and societally. Um, You see people talk about smoking or guns or even just how we react to the flu. So on the one hand... It seems to me we have to do a lot here. And on the other hand, I, I do understand the people who feel that there is something about our perception of risk here that doesn't align with how we live our lives day to day and want to somehow bring those into balance. I'm, I'm curious how you rate the tension in those arguments.
4: Look, I, I'm an economist and I'm gruesomely comfortable with putting a value on a statistical life and trying to think hard, you know, if it costs $100 million to save a life, we have a limited budget, not worth it, if it costs a million dollars, absolutely, we should do it. If you do that type of framework here, you get relatively large costs you'd be willing to pay under some of the Imperial College scenarios. For example, the difference between social distancing and not could be you know, as much as two million lives. Multiply that by a value of statistical life of 10 million, you get 20 trillion dollars or an entire year's worth of GDP. So there's that way of thinking about it where you're assessing a trade-off of life versus the economy and asking how much would you be willing to pay. That's worth thinking about. I think more likely the right model right now, though, isn't that you're trading lives off against better economic performance. It's that if you don't save those lives, you might have even worse economic performance. So the cost per life saved right now might actually be a negative number for each life saved. We're adding to GDP, not subtracting from
3: GDP. The other side of this is that what people are correctly afraid of is the level of economic suffering that is going to emerge. Um, we've begun to hear numbers like 20% unemployment, 30% unemployment, 24-point drop in GDP annualized in Q2. And these are really scary. And these are people's lives that are going to be shattered. And as much as I know Congress is working on stimulus bills, nothing is quite at that level. In Denmark, to discourage mass layoffs, the government is going to pay employers up to 90% of the salaries of workers who go home and don't work. I mean, that's much bigger than anything we're considering here. So I do wonder how much part of the problem is that there has not been a proposal put forward that allows people to kind of imagine how we're gonna economically get through this if we do what the epidemiologists say it is we need to do?
4: Yeah, I think anything we're doing in terms of providing relief to families, and some of that might involve relief for small businesses, states, and localities, but ultimately with families as a goal, um, you're lowering the cost of social distancing. That allows us to have more social distancing. And so those measures I would think of in some ways as being vital to our health and our overall um, health strategy. Congress is doing something you know, quite large relative to anything it has ever done, but still small relative to this problem which is, at least in the short term, bigger than anything we've ever seen.
3: What do you think about that Denmark idea of paying employers 90% of the salaries of workers who go home and don't work? My partner, Annie Lowry, has this term for what we're about to go through, not a recession, but an ice age. And I think there's a debate right now between, do you wanna freeze as much of the economy in place as you can, freeze workers where they are, freeze businesses um, in stasis, recognizing that then you'll be on the hook if some of them fail, if some of those businesses fail, or is there some kind of adjustment we need to go through? And I don't even like using the word adjustment; it's what the economists say. But we need to get to an economy that is going to function in whatever the new paradigm is. Like, how do you think about that tension between freezing things where they are and having the market have some kind of response to what we're about to go through? Yeah,
4: I think the the Denmark model of paying three quarters of the wages is a is a pretty appealing model. I think that trying to keep things Somewhat frozen is a good idea, but let me give you two caveats to that. One, I'm willing to do more for small businesses and the people who work for them than for large businesses. Large businesses have you know, a process of bankruptcy, a process of sharing the losses with the people that lent the money, the people that invested in them, that they're able to do in a way that small businesses can't. And the second is, I think there's some of these zero layoff ideas that sound really appealing, but I think might be just too much to ask. First of all, there's been a lot of layoffs. Second of all, in a lot of these industries, you know, for two years, you're not going to have business returning to normal. I don't think we can subsidize payroll for two straight years, and I don't think we can ask them um, to maintain it. So I think there needs to be you know, some escape valve. Maybe it's 90% payroll. That it might even be too stringent in certain industries. But trying to reconstitute an economy from scratch would be incredibly hard to do, and we want to try to avoid
3: that. There is a debate right now over the loan packages in the stimulus, which has a lot to do with oversight and conditions. And I think particularly on the left, after the 2008 crisis and its response, there's a feeling that you can't bail these companies out and then have them go spend that money on buybacks or executive compensation, which all seems correct to me. And on the other hand, something I think we did learn out of 2008 and 9 and 10 and 11 is Is it the more you worry about fraud, the more oversight you put on, the more conditions you put on, the harder it becomes for that money to go out the door because the people have to make those decisions are understaffed. This is a huge project, and they're worried about being on the hook for the one that goes wrong much more than they feel they're going to get any credit for the many that go right. So how do you think about that tension between getting the money out the door to businesses and not being blamed later for a business that took the money and then didn't do what we hoped it would?
4: So my own experience has put me much more in the second school of thought. I think you have to decide what you prioritize. If what you prioritize is jobs and the well-being of workers, then putting too many conditions that are not directly related to that is going to trade off against that. And we had a Special Investigator General for TARP, SIG TARP, that office still exists today, It was a massive office, and frankly, I think it was chilling. And reduced the number of financial institutions that accepted extra capital meant fewer loans were made, more businesses failed, more people didn't get a mortgage, and hurt people. So, I, you know, am very reluctant about giving this president, this administration, discretion and doing it without oversight, but. I'm probably more sympathetic to at least doing a decent amount of discretion and delegation to them because anything else might make it harder to get money out the door, and we really need this money to get out the door.
3: One of the things I've been hearing when I talk to economists about this recession is that the biggest question is if it's V-shaped or, once again, the, the Nike swoosh. That whether or not we go down and then come back up quickly, or whether we go down and come back very, very slowly over a a period of years and not months. And a lot of that depends on the path of the virus, which is one reason I think you can't split the health conditions here from the economic conditions. But for those who are very worried and have not heard articulated to them a vision of how you're going to manage the economy through this, what has to be in place, you think, for the economy to have a rapid? bounce back? If you accept that we're going to have a sharp uh, drop in the coming quarter or two, what will decide if we have uh, a a swift return?
4: There are a few things you would need for a swift return. Households need to have money that they're able to spend when they have more ability to spend. Businesses will need to be intact, so you don't need to form a brand new business, um, but you can take an old one and expand it. And the financial system needs to be there providing loans to the families, um, to the businesses, and um, to keep the economy moving. So I think all three of those, the household balance sheets, the business sector, and um, the financial sector and the banks are are just really, really important because there's no V-shaped recovery after a financial crisis.
3: Do you think there's any one of those that the current packages or proposals are really falling short on? I think the
4: biggest um, lack in the current package is aid to states or states and localities, since they're gonna be bearing a lot of the cost, have um, you know their revenue plummeting, and we want them doing a lot. So that's the thing that most frustrated me. Um, in terms of households, this is a fine first installment but we may well need to continue this and do more. In terms of businesses, I think for big businesses, this might be more than enough.
3: And for small businesses,
4: um, it might not
3: be enough. And then the other piece of this that I think is a little bit underplayed, both in the specific conversation we're having here and in the broader one, is the international dimension on two levels. One is the possibility for states under pressure to have some kind of financial crisis um, either be taken over by one or create one if they can't get enough dollars or they become for some reason or another insolvent and then the second is something similar, but coming out of geopolitical risks, something like Iran collapsing. And then there's a set of things that happen that just make states unable to play the role they typically do in the economy. In 2008, China was an important source of demand. Their economy is pretty locked down right now in a way that we haven't seen in the modern era. So the the whole international system seems to be at the precipice of working very differently than we're used to. I'm curious just to get your overview of what you think the dangers are there or what you think people need to be considering there to make sure that there's enough global demand and functioning financial markets for a recovery to happen for us and for others. Yeah. I mean,
4: Ezra, if we had no virus in the United States and we were 100% immune, we would still be having a conversation about whether the events in the rest of the world were gonna cause a recession in the United States and whether the geopolitical instability associated with the events around the world would have even longer lasting consequences. And I don't think we know the full extent of this in the world. A lot of the extent of it is proportional to the amount of testing you're doing. There's countries you know, throughout Africa that you know may have a lot more of this and it may spread a lot faster than we currently understand. So I think there's another reason why one would worry about you know, something like a V-shaped recovery quite narrowly is even if we get our act together, does you know everyone else in the world um, get their acts together too? Because you really would need all of that to happen.
3: I think that there's been a conversation happening that sounds like it is built on economic logic, but that is striking for not having almost any economists making the arguments in it. So when people feel like they're adopting this realist economic framework in which they sever the economy from the people in it, from the health of the people in it, from the broad social dynamics around it, as an economist, what do you think is being missed here?
4: I think a lot is being missed here, but there is a certain understanding that people are what produce economic output. They're understanding that the goal of an economy is not just people's income, but also their health. It's also just trying to make political predictions. What are people gonna behave like economically, politically, if you see the type of scenes that people are seeing in um, Lombardy right now? And so I think it just is missing, in some sense, economics, politics, psychology, morality, and probably a couple
3: other fields as well. To build on that for one second, it seems to me that what's happening at the high levels of government right now is that the Trump administration is feeling the pain of what is happening immediately. It's feeling the pain of the social distancing being imposed, feeling the pain of the unemployment claims coming in. But is having trouble doing something that i think of as a mark of what leaders have to do which is living three weeks three months often much more than that in the future feeling the pain of the things that haven't happened yet but will or the things that haven't happened yet but we're going to have to prevent you're part of an administration that had to absorb a lot of pain of things that both happened in the financial crisis but then also had to make this quite complex argument that things would have been worse if these measures hadn't been taken and so you're pretty unusually familiar with that trade-off, if you were advising them or advising the president, how would you talk to them about how to balance the politics of the moment and the problems of the moment with what could be coming and the ways in which it is hard to get credit for something that you prevented?
4: Yeah. you know, We, we used to say it would have been a lot worse if it wasn't for the actions we'd taken. And then we'd point to something like Europe, and say, look, they didn't do nearly as much in monetary and fiscal policy, and their GDP didn't recover like ours did. And I think people's eyes glazed over when you did a whole bunch of different charts and graphs and this and that, comparing the United States and Europe. Now, you can turn on your TV screen and watch scenes from Italy that your eyes don't glaze over. I mean, your eyes, your eyes tear up when you see those scenes. And that's seeing into the future, not the far future, you know, seeing in two or three weeks into, the, into our future. And so in some sense, I think the argument right now should be easier to make and easier to understand because we're not talking about a hypothetical. Um, we're talking about something that we can see you know, with our very own eyes right, um, you know, right, right across the
3: ocean. Jason Furman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash grayarea. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1, 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. NetSweet.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this show comes from indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
3: I want to move now to Dr. Ruth Faden. And I want to, as we do, emphasize something Jason said. There is more to life than economics. And not only is there more to life than economics, but economics is here to serve human beings. We have to not just have a growing economy, we have to have a moral society. We have to think not just about growth, but about who is included in that growth. And even if we are going to do things like social distancing, what does that mean, not just for us as a society, but for the most vulnerable in our society? These are the kinds of questions that Dr. Ruth Faden spends her life thinking about. So here is my conversation with her. Ruth Faden, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Delighted to talk with you. So there is
3: this growing debate about whether the social distancing cure with all of the economic pain it will cause is worse than just letting coronavirus rip through the population. As a bioethicist, when you hear that debate, what do you hear?
2: I hear a conversation going on at about two or three different levels. At the sort of 10,000 foot level, it sounds initially like a debate about national, moral, and political priorities. It sounds like we're having a national disagreement about what to prioritize from a moral point of view. And this is the, do we save the economy or do we save lives? That's how it's framed. So that's the first level. The next level is, okay, is that frame really correct? Is that how we should be thinking about what these trade-offs involve? And then we get into a sort of deep need to analyze the different empirical predictions that the two positions land on. But I want to get back to that. But let's stay for a while on that first big trade-off notion. When we get into a discussion about whether we want to save the economy or save lives, you get the response that we have heard from Governor Cuomo so eloquently, you can't place a price on human life. So of course, we have to choose lives. The problem with that claim is that we place a price on life all the time in lots of different contexts. So you you have to say more than that. You have to say more than we don't place a price on human life. The
3: problem here seems to me to be not that we don't place a price on human life, we do it all the time, but th- we do it inconsistently. And so you have people saying, well, why endure this level of economic dislocation when we don't keep the speed limit at 40 miles per hour so people don't crash their cars or ban all all cigarettes isn't this inconsistent in a way that is going to harm people much more than maybe other ways of saving lives would um, that we could choose instead and there's this appeal to a form of rationality that we apply it seems to me very inconsistently
2: absolutely we apply it inconsistently and we know there are lots of good reasons why we apply it inconsistently. And we could get into a great conversation about how uh, risk perception and cognitive biases are very much altering the way in which we're thinking about things right now. But even given right the fact that we do apply how we price life inconsistently, right, we're in a special context now. So let me see if I can draw an analogy for you from the health frame, right? So when we talk about how much to allocate say for the health budget of the city of New York. We're thinking about standard sorts of trade-offs there, difficult ones between the other services that the city of New York has to provide its citizens. But we're also thinking about it in regular order under normal times. And we know that we set limits and we know that those, those limits have effects on people's lives that are not good and sometimes are limits that, that end life. But it's in the sort of ordinary way in which we live and function as a society. Think about when the, the classic baby is on the bottom of the well, right? When the baby is at the bottom of the well, we marshal all sorts of resources to save the baby. Now, you could say that's inconsistent. You could say that's a function of misunderstanding human emotions and cognitive biases. Or you could say that there is something very special about rescuing people from the brink of death. This is a classic debate in my field in bioethics. What we're facing here is a situation in which we've got hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people either in the well or about to fall in. And so when we consider how we should respond in this kind of a context, the sort of moral frame changes. In this context, it's really, really difficult. And I would argue, as an aside, morally wrong, for society to pull back and say, you know what? Sorry, this is normal order. And in normal order, we just can't save all these people. Well, here we're talking about an enormous number of people that we know are going to die or suffer grievously if we don't act. That's the context in which we're in. And that's the context in which we think about saving the economy versus saving lives. You could get the response that we got from the Lieutenant Governor of Texas when he said,
3: Let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it.
2: Uh, And those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. But is that really what we're facing? Is his way of shaping up, as it were, the moral dilemma correct?
3: Let me interrogate that for a minute. It seems very important that we're being transparent in what our competing models are here. And what seems to me to have taken hold is a choice between an extreme social distancing model, which is what many places are in right now, and a business-as-usual model. But you've made some, I think, very important points in here that everything in this, no matter how we do it, is going to be shaped by a fallibility in human risk perception. And so it seems wrong to me, this idea that there is some world where Donald Trump gets out on a stage, says, go about your lives as normal, and if— one million seniors have to die over the next four months, so be it. Just don't worry about it too much and keep going to work, that people will keep going to work, that everything will operate in this business as usual way. Um, I, I worry that in addition to there being some moral problems with the choice being set up, that that's actually not the choice we're facing at all.
2: No, I would agree. I mean, if we take the lieutenant governor's statement and interrogate it a bit, first of all, it's not just 70-year-olds whose lives hang in the balance. And I know we've sort of beaten this one over and over and over and over again, but it's really important to appreciate that it's not just older people, right, who would die. That's the case not only from COVID-19, but as we all know from all of the other emergent and chronic health problems that people have across the lifespan, that it would not be able to be treated, right, if we left COVID to its own devices. So that's one piece of it. But more importantly, He is making a decision for himself, right? This is not a context. This is a collective action problem. We can't go around asking people, so what would you prefer? It doesn't work that way here. There has to be a decision made that's population-wide and that requires a very different way of thinking about it. We cannot have a decision here that's unanimous, that everybody agrees with. It's in the nature of public policies and certainly in the nature of this one that there will be winners and losers whichever way we go, and that not everybody will agree with the policy. What we need is, some, is, is leadership in this context who looks at this statement and says, wait a minute, it's not only the 70-year-olds who are going to lose, be the losers, if we, in fact, go back to business as usual and stop social distancing. And I think it's not quite so stark what's going to be proposed. But also, it's not really clear that the American way of life is going to change long-term. It'll change short-term, but it changes short-term in every crisis. This is effectively one of the most significant crises that the world has ever faced in terms of the numbers of lives that could be lost and the destruction to the economies globally and nationally that will result but we survive those and we go on. Maybe the world looks differently. Maybe we do lots of things differently, but it's not as if we're going to obliterate the American way of life if we all were to social isolate, be socially isolated to some significant degree for some significant period of time. The country will continue. What's troubling me in, in the way in which we're framing this as sort of the way this is being framed is it's as if there's a world out there That if we just let everything go back to normal, in fact, it will be normal. But it's not going to be. People are going to die.
3: But let me take the other side of the argument here to be fair to it, which is that even as there is no normal we can get to, at the same time, there is a level of abnormal that would clearly be too much. And I think something people are reacting to in this, and I've I've gotten this in email and elsewhere, is a sense that there is an escalating demand for an almost perfect level of social distancing, which clearly is unsustainable in the long run. And as such, are you just creating a lot of economic damage and then you're going to have this virus rip through the population anyway? And I would say one level beneath that, there's a sense that whatever decisions are being made do not feel like they are being made in a clear way with the trade-offs considered and buy-in and, and, and buy achieved. And so that there just seems to me to be a growing lack of credibility on both sides. People hear Trump say he wants to lift all of it. It sounds ridiculous and cruel and inhumane and irresponsible. Um, people see these things floating around on social media, go to the grocery store once a week, never see another human being for who knows how long, and that's not going to work. And so... There seems to me to be a process breakdown here, as well as a scary situation
2: motivating it. It's a process breakdown, and it's also just uh, sadly symptomatic of, of the inability for us to have a national conversation for very long that is reasonable and open to arguments on all sides. We just don't seem capable of doing this for any sustained period of time. There are alternatives, right? What is being proposed uh, on the social distancing side ranges from you know, following the Wuhan model and significant social distancing for eight plus weeks to the idea that we might be able to have success as a strategy if we could get everybody to social distance significantly nationwide for two to three weeks but not what we did, not what not the president's two-week guide, guidelines, but significant, serious, nationwide social distancing for two to three weeks, after which, if we had sufficient testing, and especially if we get the serology-type test that will let us know that people have antibodies, we can get a picture of where different parts of the country are. We can get a sense of what the sort of curve is going to look like now in different locations in the country. And we can start to loosen up restrictions at that point. So if everyone's everyone's in or everyone who can be in for two to three weeks, it buys us incredibly important time to build up our testing capacity, we hope. It also means we'll figure out who at least is symptomatic presumptively ill with COVID-19 and take care of those people, kind of starve the virus of the hosts that it needs for a bit, right? Healthcare systems have three more weeks to catch up. And we can, in a very strategic, smart way, begin to let people return to their economic lives without this kind of ill-conceived notion that if we lift restrictions, somehow it's going to be okay. That it's going to be okay economically and that it's going to be okay from the standpoint of the health of the country, the lives that are at stake. It's hard for me to envision, Ezra, and maybe I'm not getting it. How, in fact, this country goes back to normal. When you've got what, 150 million of us already under state stay-at-home orders and you have healthcare systems crashing like they're crashing in New York and like we're worried about where I work at Johns Hopkins. How is that going to function exactly? I mean I'm sort of trouble sort of trouble envisioning this. Are people just going to ignore what's happening in some parts of the world and continue It seems an odd sense to me. And eventually the healthcare situation gets so bad that we're gonna have to then come up with some sorts of measures. The economy is not gonna do well under those circumstances. I just don't see how it can. But I think there's a path forward that recognizes, of course, we're in the business of trade-offs. Of course, we're in the business of trade-offs. And we have to be strategic about this and figure out how we can best get a handle on the pandemic And still allow resumption of economic activity in a staged way as appropriate, perhaps in a reasonably short period of time.
3: How do you create a space for those trade-offs to be made and to be discussed?
2: Well, you're providing one right now. We need much more public conversation about this. But I'm not sure how to do this in the current context, uh, to be honest. We have at the federal level, hollowed out to a significant degree, the kinds of people we need to have advising the president and laying out the options. If I had, um, you know, if I had my magic wand, I would take the technical experts on the economy and the technical, the best technical experts on the economy, the best technical experts on pandemics and the related biomedical sciences that are required to think this through and have them lay out for us, not a hundred trade-offs, but three or four plausible trade-offs fully spinning out the implications with the modelers so that we could see, at least so that our leadership could see exactly what They are going to win and lose, and who the winners and losers are going to be. You know, from from the standpoint of how you think about this from an ethics point of view, when you know that you've got to make a choice that has really, really bad consequences on both sides. And usually when that happens, those consequences are not uniformly distributed through the population. Some people are going to suffer more, some people suffer less, and sometimes that's tied to bigger background questions about inequality and injustice. There's an obligation, whichever side you choose, to do whatever you can to mitigate those bad consequences. I haven't heard any conversation about what that would look like. So not only do we need an array of, you know, three or four plausible options that have really good arguments, not simplified arguments, but really good arguments on both sides, arrayed for us with the trade-offs, but also the potential for mitigating, at least in part, the downsides of the different trade-offs. To get a full picture, you really have to understand sort of all the collateral damage and the extent to which that collateral damage can in any way be modulated. To not
3: put this all on Trump, to me, one of the great political failures of this period, and it's been true at the federal level, but I'm in California where there are very aggressive measures. I'm very impressed by how quickly the governor here, Gavin Newsom, has acted. But even here. There is no well communicated vision for what comes after social distancing. And it seems to me that one reason the choice has begun to feel so stark to people either you let people die or you destroy the economy for the foreseeable future with all the mass human suffering that will entail is because nobody has articulated in a clear, consistent, and trustworthy way a strategy for what comes after social distancing. What are we going to use this two, three, four weeks to do such that on the other end, there's something sustainable there? I think people need to feel that somebody has a plan here and it doesn't feel like anybody has a plan. It feels like emergency measures are being slapped down and we're just panicking our way through them.
2: Well, look, to some extent, you're absolutely right. Actually, to a large extent, you're right. And this is is why I feel so strongly we need to have this laid out down to, you know, life after, right? So, if you social distance for 3 weeks, significantly nationwide for 6 weeks, for 8 weeks, what are we likely to trade off? When do we initiate this and what is life like after, right? What would we what would we start to open up at what pace? When might we need to retract and so on? There's a lot of conversation of, about wanting to watch especially right now that when the Wuhan area is being opened up for the first time in any significant way today, what's going to happen in China in particular, right, over the next month or so? And we'll learn more as, as a consequence about how to think about life after here. But one of the problems, Ezra, in terms of what you you want and what we all want and what we should at least have plausible scenarios for is that it's hard to know what it what's going to happen. It's hard to know the pace at which <laughs> at least in this country we're going to be able to do rapid reliable population-wide epidemiological screening, not only testing that's critical for clinical decision making and triage, but epidemiological screening that allow us to get a picture of population. How long before that happens? How long before we do have therapeutics that will improve the prospects for people who become seriously ill and reduce the pressure on ventilators? How long before we have more ventilators? How long? How long? Right? We, we, we don't have the answers to a lot of these questions. We can model out and kind of project what life would be after best case scenarios, We were able to screen widely. We have a partially effective therapeutic, and we have really built back up our hospital capacity and our ability to to be agile and move wherever the next hotspot is. And we could do a worst case scenario. We open up after three weeks or four weeks, there's unfortunately a spike again, and we need to go back down for two weeks in one area or the other it's very difficult under the best of circumstances to lay out a strategy with multiple options and clarity about the trade-offs in a context in which the uncertainty about so many key questions remains. We need the answers to those questions. To proceed to go back to whatever it means to say business as usual, in the absence of the answers to those questions though, seems really, really a catastrophic mistake.
3: Is this fundamentally an ethical question and trade-off we're facing or is this an empirical question and trade-off we're facing about the likely outcomes of different scenarios?
2: So this is like my favorite question ever, right? Really? Uh, And the reason, (laughs) honestly, across many contexts, because I always want to get back to the recognition that Sometimes you have moral disagreements that are fundamentally moral disagreements, right? No amount of empirical information is going to shake anybody from their view. It doesn't really much matter. I believe the physician-assisted suicide is never morally permissible. You can put the most extreme case in front of me. It's just wrong. Someone would hold the opposite view. From a situation in which, as you start to... dissect what people are arguing over. Lieutenant governor of Texas is saying, I'm gonna sacrifice myself so my kids can have an American way of life. When you start looking at that claim and you say, how much of that position would I agree with if I really thought that was the only way to preserve the American way of life for my kids and grandkids? If I thought that was the case, then I might say, look, I'll run my chances. I've had, you know, seven decades or whatever, I'll go for it. But actually, I don't agree with him empirically. I don't believe, right, what he believes about the contingent facts of the matter. So we're not necessarily having a moral disagreement, it just sounds like it, right? It sounds like I'm being selfish as a 70-year-old, right, if I disagree with him, because I'm going to put my life above the welfare of my children and grandchildren. But in fact, it's not the case. He has a set of empirical assumptions about what's going to happen if we continue to take an enormous hit in the economy that leads to the conclusion that the United States will be so crippled that his kids will not be able to have the kind, his grandkids will not be able to have anything like the life that he's had. Somebody else looks at the same sort of trade-off and says, no, wait a minute. I don't think that's what's going to happen in the world at all. If you've got very different empirical sort of views of how this is going to play out and what's going to be really awful, right, What looks like a moral disagreement ends up being a disagreement about probabilities and contingencies. Now, having said that, often the way we see what we believe is likely to happen empirically, the way we frame what we believe is likely to happen empirically is conditioned by our moral values and what I tend to think of as a really important way to live my life. So it's complicated. The bottom line is we just have very different sets of empirical assumptions about how just how bad it's going to be and for whom and for how long under these exaggerated polar opposite positions. We're going to either the economy is going to come roaring back or everybody's going to die. I I want to
3: hold on that idea for a minute of for whom. Because one thing I thought when I heard Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick make that argument is that If Lieutenant Governor of Texas gets coronavirus as an older person, he is not going to be denied a ventilator, no matter what is happening in the Texas healthcare system. Probably not. He is not a poor senior. He's not somebody with a weak attachment to the healthcare system. He's not somebody who can't get himself to the front of the line. And but this goes in both directions. And so I want to talk about these two dimensions of vulnerability here. On the one hand. A lot of the people banging on most moralistically and loudly about social distancing are knowledge workers who get to stay safely at home with their same jobs, going to Instacart to get their groceries delivered. And meanwhile, there are all these people out there making the economy run for them at great risk. The flip side of that is that in a world where we flood everybody back out into the economy, the people who are going to be most vulnerable to this, not just seniors, but people who are less attached to the healthcare system, people who are insecurely housed, people who are in prison populations, et cetera, are going to pay a price that is being decided for them by those with a lot more privilege. And I'm curious how you think about these trade-offs between the much less vulnerable people who are having this conversation loudly and making these decisions and the much more vulnerable populations who will be subject to whatever they end up deciding.
2: You may remember that I said that however you spin this out, when there are winners and losers in public policy generally, but certainly in a context like this, when you identify who's going to win and who's going to lose or who's going to win more and who's going to lose less in a scenario like we're facing now, there's an absolute moral obligation to mitigate the burden that's going to fall on the people who are going to lose the most. And it's especially problematic from the standpoint of questions about structural injustice. When the people who are going to lose the most are the people who already are the most disadvantaged, which is, by the way, what happens every single time there's a public health emergency, every single time. It's always the people who are the least disadvantaged that suffer the most in wealthy countries, and it's the people in poor countries generally who suffer more than the people in high-income countries. So, in the context in which you talk about social distancing now, and I've been saying this you know, in as many contexts as I can, as loudly as I can, it is absolutely unacceptable that we do not do what needs to be done to put a floor underneath the feet of the people who are taking the hit the hardest. And that includes especially the people who have to continue as essential workers, including, especially within them, those that are not professionals, right? Who are taking the hit, but who are not in professional roles where they have at least some understanding of professional ethics that that takes them to work with honor and pride, right? It includes especially the children from low-income families and families of color, disproportionately low-income, who are going to suffer the most from school closings. We, we can't just act as if there are no burdens that follow from social distancing. And you're right. So if, it's the knowledge elites who can work at home. But believe me, it's not just the knowledge elites. And of course, you know this, Ezra. It's every doctor and nurse I know, every respiratory therapist I'm aware of, who is not staying home who can't stay home. And frankly, I don't know how we can face those people and what they will be confronting and what we will be asking of them if we don't do something other than simply just say, okay, that was a good three weeks, let's go back, or two weeks. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it's more the point that we have have that obligation to dig deeper and say, wait a minute, right? This burden is not falling evenly on all of us. I can work from home, you can work from home. Great. Most people who are working from home now are not working. They're just home. Because they can't work from home and they're losing their they're losing their everything. And that's that should not then immediately turn to okay that means we have to stop and get the economy going again. That's not the only option. The other options of course then, you know, the nightmare that's been going on 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 the hill for the past week of trying to get out some piece of coherent legislation that recognizes that we need a massive response to a massive, massive crisis.
3: Is there anything I should have asked you here that I didn't or that you wanna cover that we didn't?
2: Let me just say two things. One is that as we've all lived the past few days, we know, past few weeks, we know, a week is a lifetime in the context of this pandemic globally and in the United States, I'm not sure what's going to be the case next Monday. And I'm not sure whether the apparent resolve of the administration to get the country back to work again will still be there, depending on how bad things get over the next week. So I think we need to watch that. The other thing I think I just would want to emphasize again is the important of, importance of not getting us trapped into a false dichotomy. It's not no social isolation versus get the economy going. I don't think anybody serious is, on either side is proposing either extreme. I don't think anybody on the side that wants not, you know, who wants us to get back to work is saying absolutely all over the country, we should drop all restrictions and everybody should just go back to normal life nor do I think that anybody serious on the side of wanting more social isolation strategies to continue for longer, tactics I would say, to continue for longer, is saying we have to do this for 12 to 18 months. We are gonna have to end up finding a smart strategy that gets the most out of social isolation and other tactics that we can employ in concert to get us as fast as possible to the resumption of economic activity for as many of us as possible
3: ruth Faden, thank you very much
2: thank you ezra
3: thank you to dr ruth faden i want to take a moment here at the end to just tell you <laughs> how i'm feeling there are a lot of moments in american politics when i'm outraged angry when i see injustice This is a moment when I'm truly scared. I think it is worth being truthful that for many of us who saw Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign and thought about what his presidency would look like, we were on the one hand right that it has been chaotic and poorly managed and he has not always been truthful to say the least. But on the other hand, some of the more dire predictions were wrong. Um, The economy has more or less done okay. We've not had huge foreign crises. There have been true moments of catastrophe like the hurricane in Puerto Rico. But overall, a lot more is held together than many of us feared. And I'm worried that's ending right now. I am worried looking at the curve of coronavirus infections in America, which are, is now beginning to take on a shape of its own. We are outpacing for the rest of the world where competitor countries were at this moment. We are looking worse than Italy. And we are looking worse in Italy at the same moment that our political leader is beginning to try to take off the pressure. When you're a leader of an organization, the fundamental thing you have to do is live in the future. You have to live not just five days, not just five weeks, but often five months, five years in the future. That is what CEOs do. That's what presidents do. You are being tasked with imagining where things are going to be and preparing your organization, be that organization a country or a company, for it now. Donald Trump is a uniquely present focused person. He is very responsive and reactive to the moment he's in. At times, that is a tremendous advantage for him. And as a marketer, it can be a real advantage for him. He sees things in terms of image and symbolism, and he's very good at manipulating all that. But right now, what is happening is he is feeling the pain of social distancing because it is happening right now. And he is not able to feel the pain of 20 million coronavirus infections, of full hospitals, of a world in which everything is coming to a halt because we are living in a true and dire plague. And I fear for what that can create. There is not going to be a version of this that works if the federal government is not unified in its response and if the president of the United States Is telling people this isn't that bad and is telling people that it is wrong to keep doing the very hard things that we need to do to try to keep this under control. They're not going to happen. And many people of all political persuasions will suffer. They will die. Being president is always an important job, but there are some times, some days when it is more important than others. And this is one of those times. And president is a man right now who is not up to that time and he is not the one who will suffer when some of these folks say like that lieutenant governor well i would sacrifice my life well you're probably not going to you're not the one who won't get a ventilator donald trump if he catches coronavirus he'll get a ventilator but not everybody will for all that the questions he is raising the intuitions he has they reflect where a lot of people are and so They can't just be dealt with by shaming and yelling and condemning. They're also going to have to be dealt with by trying to understand emotionally where they're coming from, not necessarily for him but for the people he speaks for, Um, and for many people he doesn't speak for but who feel the same way. And there's going to need to be an answer. I would say phase one of the messaging on this was social distancing now and a shame-oriented version of social distancing. I I see things going around all the time. It it means now you can only go to the grocery once a week and you can't see anybody, and you can't, and you can't, and you can't, and at some point, it's not gonna be realistic. Probably already isn't realistic for a lot of families. And how about, as Ron Klain said on the show a week ago, all those people who have to be out there, so you writing your memes on Twitter, or me writing my posts on Twitter or anywhere, can sit in our houses but still have groceries and still have power and still have water, We are going to need to have a vision of not just what comes after social distancing, but what comes in this economy after social distancing. We need a vision not just for phase two of how we control the virus, but we also need a vision for rebuilding. We need something much more far-reaching than most of our political leadership has been capable of offering and much more optimistic than I think most of us are feeling right now. And that is a tremendous challenge of leadership. And hopefully someone out there is capable of meeting it. Or else, hopefully, in some grassroots way, we are all going to be able to meet it somehow together. Thank you, as always, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for engineering and producing under very adverse circumstances, and to you for listening. Our emails is show at Vox.com. Please keep telling us what conversations you want to hear here right now. The Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production.